On this episode of the BYO Nano Podcast, we've been collecting your letters, and throughout this episode, our special guests will be sharing advice and insight on how to best start or grow your nano brewery. This is John Hall, and welcome to episode 27. There's a lot to think about, to plan, and to dream towards when it comes to your nano brewery, and sometimes you need a little help. That's what this episode is all about. We've been collecting your emails, and we'll be answering them today. My guests are Laura Lodge and Steve Parks, and they're going to be coming up in a moment. But first, a word of thanks to this show's sponsors, and we hope you'll give them a closer look. Blickman Pro Brewing. With superior engineering and unrivaled service, Blickman Pro Brewing equipment is the right choice for pro results. Whether it's for your pilot system or production line, their robust systems come fully equipped with everything you need to hit the ground running. Designed for easy setup and intuitive use, their brew house systems and cellaring equipment deliver uncompromising quality and reliability backed by a name you trust. So you can focus on what matters most, your beer. Visit BlickmanPro.com today. Yakima Chief Hops has combined their patented cryogenic hop processing technology with cutting-edge lab analysis to create cryohops with a pop. Cryopop Original Blend is a supercharged, concentrated lupulin pellet packed with the most beer-soluble hop compounds or compounds that survive the brewing process. It is engineered to bring massive tropical, stone fruit, and citrus aromas to your finished beers. Learn more about this new innovative product at cryopopblend.com. And... Hey, Nano Brewers, Fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, is now offering dry ale and lager yeasts in flexible 100 gram pouches. Try their Safe Ale WBO6 yeast in the convenient 100 gram pouch. It's the perfect solution for wheat based beers. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit fermentus.com. Also, get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new Nano Plus membership. Learn from craft beer experts watching replays of past NanoCon seminars, plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com slash nano plus for more details. After our last episode, we've been putting out calls for your emails relating to your small brewery, and goodness did you deliver. We're going to be talking about it all, from recipes to growth and sharing insights, and I'm so glad that there are two people with vast knowledge and unparalleled practical experience joining me today. As the co-founder of the Big Beers, Belgians, and Barley Wine Festival, Laura Lodge has been engaged in the craft beer industry since 1997. She's the owner of customized craft beer programs, designing events, resort retail programs, and educational programs based on craft beer. She's also the author of Distribution Insights for the Craft Brewer. She's also the co-founder of Start a Brewery, an educational resource for those dreaming of opening a brewery, those who are taking the steps to make their dream a reality, and those who are opening their brewery doors and living it. 
Steve Parks is the brewmaster of Drop-In Brewing in Vermont and the owner and lead instructor of the American Brewers Guild. He's a regular speaker on the National Craft Brewers Conference and National Brew Pub Conference stage. He is a Great American Beer Festival and World Beer Cup judge, and he's hosted the Institute of Brewing Studies Ask the Expert Q&A Forum and is a former advisor of the IBS Troubleshooting Committee and National Board of Advisors. Steve has written for and been featured in numerous magazines and technical journals. He served as the chairman of the Northern California section of the Master Brewers Association of the Americas and technical chair in California and New England. And in 2009, Steve was awarded the Russell Shearer Award by the Brewers Association for Innovation in Craft Brewing. Welcome to you both. Let's get into the letters, shall we? All right. So the first question that we have comes from Bill. And he says, I'm working through the Nano podcast series. And what I've yet to hear is how do you take the big step of going from dream to reality? Where's the best place to start? Is it business case? Is it finding partners, investors, loans, finding a location, working with government agencies on permits and shopping for equipment? What do you do first? He notes that everything needs something to happen before something else. And the order is all over the place. So how do you get it all in line? Who wants to tackle that one? I can I can start there. Sure. <laughs> um, I would say the first thing you need is to to nail down your partnership. If you're going to have partners in this adventure, that that is the first place to begin to make sure you have people that are like minded, that are in a good position, uh, time wise, career wise, to be spending the, the the time needed or agree on the time that's going to be spent together on this adventure, and to really. Um, really kind of spend the hours fleshing out what that dream would look like. I think before you go in for financing, before you, um, I mean, a location may appear, but before you actively go looking for a location, I, I think you really need to have an idea of what it is you want to build, what capacity, what location, what your, are you going to be a tap room? Are you going to uh, just package? Um, I, I think there needs to be some thought to that. And, and there's there's also a number of people who've advocated for contract brewing, just simply based on the dream and the abilities of the partners and the time you want to put in. So I think I think the partner piece is, is critical. Steve, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's important to find um, <clears throat> people you're going to need to work with because you're not going to be able to do it all by yourself. Um, I think in my uh, talk about, the, my workshop about this very topic, talk about um, asking yourself if you're the right person. Um, what is your mission and vision? Create one if you don't have one. Um, think about why you want to do this. What's the main, what's the impetus here? Is it uh, to fulfill a lifelong dream? Is it to, is it to um, reinvent yourself? Is it to um, make some money? Um, all of those things require, um, you know, would require a slightly different plan. Um, look at um, what your options are regarding getting help, uh, partnering up with people that have the skill set that you need in other areas of the business. Um, think about is there the availability of the people that you're going to need to make it realistic. Write a business plan. Um, this is kind of one thing that you need, you need to think about right from the beginning. Can't really emphasize it enough that your business plan is going to be your roadmap uh, for for how you get the place uh, up and running, um, how you how you attract 
financial partners and how you borrow money from a bank in order to make it happen. Um, the other stuff falls into place um, as you start to research it and go into the, you know, what is necessary to start the business. Um, uh, you can find online what the appropriate timeline is. There's a number of uh, options um, online to help you with that. Um, you know, there are a bunch of things you need to do at once. Like you can't, you can't um, apply for your federal license. Well, it used to be that you couldn't apply for your federal license until you had a building, and you can't get a building until you know that you're going to be able to open a brewery. And so you're right. It did, it, it did used to um, uh, get complicated, but. Um, it's a little easier nowadays. You you can you can uh, you can uh, work through um, all the things you need to do. But you're right; there are a lot of uh, hurdles to get across. Uh, to add on to that, just a little bit, I think yeah. the, the the new opportunities that are out there now include some excellent three or four day workshops or classes that you could go in uh, and and just go in with the idea of of determining if this is something that makes sense for you. And another option um, that I would highly encourage is is working in a brewery for some time, whether that's part-time or whether that's full-time, to actually get the experience of doing and seeing and being part of that um, that experience, that business. And, and that's another kind of litmus test to see, is this something that you want to do? And, and that strikes me as critically important because I know that there are people who jump from being a home brewer, a well-established home brewer to go into a nano size. So still working on relatively small equipment um, being like, okay, well now there's just a business aspect to it, but that, that practical experience really does pay off in the, in, in, in the long run. And, and, and Steve, I imagine education uh, does as well. Steve, are you still there? We can certainly speak to education as well. Sure. I think that the, um, the the classes that you can find now, it used to be mostly Siebel was the the standard or UC Davis, and now there's there's so many um, UCSD University of Vermont. There's so many different um, higher learning opportunities to either get into the business side or get into the brewing side, and I think it's so valuable to to learn both sides. Um, regardless of, of which side um, you have the most experience in. And um, the workshops in particular, I, I have often seen a, a brewing partner and a, a business partner both attend the workshop. And it's really good to see both learning about the accounting and the business side and both learning about the brewing and the equipment and the yeast and all of that stuff so that they each understand more about what the other is is planning to be tackling or responsible for. I think there's a lot more understanding and empathy that can happen as a partnership if you have a better idea what needs to be happening or supported um, in the side that you're maybe not the most responsible for. Can I um, also mention that the American Brewers Guild has been around as a professional brewing school since the days when there was just UC Davis and Siebel and us, and that we've always taught the business side of, uh, of, uh, of things to uh, our, our graduates as well. That was the that was the opening I was trying to give you when uh when your audio cut out for a second there. So I'm glad there we go. Thank I'm you. glad you, you, you snuck it in. Um, there's a question from Matt that came through saying, "Are there any grants that anybody's available uh, that anybody's aware of for starting a small brewery, a nano brewery? Are there? Oh. Are there? Yeah. Uh, um, what I what we've found um um 
and teach uh, in our classes is uh, to get in touch with the state's small business development organization. Every state has one. And, um, and uh, they are the people that know. Um, there definitely are. There's grants for um, business development. There's grants for uh, starting businesses. There's real estate um, grants available in some states. There's a small or low-cost equipment loan grants available. And, um, and every state uh, pretty much is offering some form of business development program. And, uh, and uh, it just so happens that the uh, one in Vermont um, has a gentleman called Charlie Inninger who uh, uh, specializes in small breweries. He's helped, um, he's helped um, put together or helped breweries with loan packages and, and, um, and uh, putting their financial package together uh, for, their, for their openings. He did work with The Alchemist. He's worked with a couple of other breweries in Vermont, Lawson's as well. And uh, he teaches classes for the American Brewers Guild on um, on uh, starting up businesses, and uh, and the, the the state small business development organization is the first place to go. I've also seen a number of um, local community development things, so you could maybe look locally also. And depending on on who you are and where you walk in the world, there may be some um, opportunities for grants or. Um, scholarships on the educational side or support from other areas like Brewing the American Dream or... Yeah, that's um, the Sam Adams. Yeah. Right. Um, and a lot of like beer culture has some sponsorships and some scholarships. And there's there's a lot of avenues for finance and for education and for, you know, a lot of stuff, soup to nuts. If you, if you look around, um, there are a lot of organizations that are of a, of a specific cultural background that support their um, uh, younger members in, in entrepreneurial adventures. Um, it's surprising how much is out there if you if you continue to dig and look and ask. Yeah, and, and it shouldn't necessarily be digging just about beer itself. I think as you both touched on, like it can be about the business aspects of it, or it could be uh, you know grants on location of real estate, or you know it, it's not just about the liquid. Um, but everything that the business entails, that there's probably other organizations that are out there. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a question from Rusty, uh, and this is this is sort of a two-part question of one wondering about getting off the ground with contract brewing, um, and if there is uh, success to be had uh, by being a nano starting off on a contract basis. Uh, any any thoughts on starting that route before? hanging your own shingle, putting your own roots down? I think generally speaking, it's done the other way around. Um, you start on, if you're talking about nano brewing and then you're making beer on a very small scale and then the avenues for expansion would be contract brewing. Um, but yeah, there's certainly a, a historical kind of uh, um, track record in, in the brewing industry of people uh, of people using another brewer's facilities to create larger volumes of their own beer. I've also seen, my brother was a good example actually in the 90s, um, where he originally took the recipes that he and his partners had come up with and um, contract brewed those recipes while they worked in the market to, to work on building the brand. And that was that was unusual at that time. I think it's also more normal these days to, to know when somebody's contract brewing, mm -hmm. um, knowing that Pabst Brewing Company didn't have their own brewery was something that was a shock to most. 
Um, <laughs> but but it's interesting, and I agree with Steve that contract brewing is usually an expansion function. But I'm also learning. Um, I learn I learn surprising things every day, right? We all do if we pay attention. I I didn't understand that contract brewing was often a a route to opening a brewery or starting a brand without the same amount of capital totally makes sense it's just not something that i had uh realized and so if you're looking to not do the brewing part but you want to do the branding part and the promotion part and the 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 being on the business side um contract brewing would trust the brewing portion to somebody else and magically beer appears on the other side with your fantastic label on it yeah, that was. I remember the Sam Adams story. That's how they started. So, yeah, there's definitely a, a there's a, certainly a historical precedent for getting into business that way, um, and then perhaps building your own facility afterwards when you've uh, raised the capital to do it. There, the second part of Rusty's question, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit, but. Um, what about starting a brewery while still working a day job? Is it sustainable to run a small brewery in some capacity as a nights and weekends side hustle project, or is it all or nothing? Well, depends where you want to ultimately take it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a vanity project if you're just working on weekends and, and doing it as a side thing. It's like people deserve to try my wonderful recipes um, then great if you're happy with that um if you want to seriously turn it into a business that's going to make money and build a brand then yeah you've got to work at it full time i have what, run into yeah. a number of of people who have um hired managers trusted obviously or have partners that have a day job and they do full-time or vice versa so i think there's a combination to be had there but as a solo project um i would i would 100 agree that that if you want it just to be open like one day a week, um, or you're doing a combination of Niall is a great example at Mad Fritz where he makes wine and he makes beer. And so none of that is necessarily full-time, but it all fits together. And he has a, a cool little experimental, um, awesome brewery alongside everything else he's doing. I, I mean, I've, I've had conversations with folks where, and Laura, it's like what you're saying of having if you have multiple partners, you make the decision of, okay, who is going to be here day in and day out to, to, to make sure that it's done. Otherwise, as Steve's saying, it sort of becomes a vanity project. But if you want to be successful in the long term, there should be somebody who's there all the time. And I remember talking with Pete Slosberg uh, years ago, and he was saying that he and his business partner finally made the decision that one of them had to be full time. You know, that they were both in it together, but one of them had to be putting in the 40, 60, 80 hours a week to really get the business uh, to, to grow. And the other could have the day job that would still uh, fund the brewery in the background. And and it, and it worked out for them for a short period. And, you know, even uh, recent profiles on this show, we've seen where there is one full time employee for four partners or three partners um, who's putting the work in. So, yeah, I, I, I think the precedent is there that if you want to make this your job, somebody has to be putting the hours in. Mm -hmm. um, all right, there's a question from Jeff uh, who says, when planning a nano slash microbrewery, one big question is what size brew house should I start with? Um, understandably, this is a very personal decision and unique to your business objectives and startup capital. Um, aside from brewing time savings, what else should someone consider 
when doing any cost saving uh, calculations when trying to decide on a starting system size. For example, do ingredients cost more or less scale linearly? It is a personal decision, I imagine, but is there any, or a capital decision as he points out, but is there um, thoughts that either of you had? So go, go ahead, Steve. Um, oh. Okay, um, I, I can address this on a on a higher level strategic um, perspective basis, but um, I think what I've I've heard the most that has made the most sense to me is that it's great to have space to be able to expand once you're successful, um, but to go too big initially is a capital problem when you don't know if you have the business to support what you could brew with that system. Um, I, I also have heard much caution about going too small. And, and if you're successful, then you're brewing you know, all the time and don't have enough brewing vessels for fermentation. Um, so there's a balance there for sure. The idea of brewing half batches or quarter batches on huge systems doesn't always pan out either. And I'm sure Steve can part, talk more about that than I can, but um, you have to bring the the the, the liquid and, and the process and the tanks up to a certain point for all of the pieces and parts to work correctly. So you can't always brew tiny batches on a huge system in order to, to um, get that particular efficiency. But if you find a space that you can expand once you're more successful, I think that that's a good solution. Steve? Yeah, it comes from, I think it comes back to your business plan, um, your pro formas, um, the numbers that you put down on paper um, that you um, you can hedge a little bit um, regarding size, but really you need to build a brewery that's capable of enacting your business plan. Um, uh, here's how much beer we need to sell in order to make this business work. Here's how much beer we need to make, and let's make that in as few batches as we can. It's giving ourselves the flexibility to make many different, uh, as many different styles as we can probably probably handle as well. Um, you're right, Laura, about the brewing small on big on bigger equipment. It, um, it you don't realise the efficiencies, and it creates some some certainly some issues and some overuse of material. Um, when you for most people starting out, certainly if we're talking about nano breweries, you're not talking about. Um, I mean, just the second part of the question, which was um, uh, whether economies of scale kick in at any point. Um, yeah you're in that small range you're not really going to um, bring 10 barrels at a time the ingredients are no cheaper than brewing one barrel or brewing 100 for that matter <clears throat> uh, so so you're not really going to realize anything there um, so choosing the, the, the size of system that makes the beer you want i read a business plan once um, where, where they were buying and they were putting in a three and a half barrel system and um, and in order to meet and do some quick math on the volume of beer they need to sell to meet the numbers they put forward in their pro forma and and uh, they would have been you know brewing three times a day and they didn't have the fermenters for that and it's just uh, this make sure your numbers work um they were all that same brewery was also going to be selling you know t-shirts at a higher profit margin than the gap can so i don't think they were realistic but but the brewing the brewing side of the the, the volume capacity needs to match what you plan on selling um, and then as when it comes down to it, you know, adding fermentation space or, or capacity is uh, is relatively cheap, rather much cheaper than doubling the size of your brew house. And um, but then you run into the, the labor aspects of brewing more often. And we go back to whether the 
whether you can afford the time or not, whether you've got a day job, there's all kinds of things to consider. Um, but sizing it correctly, at least so you can make the amount of beer you plan on selling is, I think, the first step. We'll get back to the letters in just a moment. But first, thanks to this episode's sponsors, Blickman Pro Brewing. With superior engineering and unrivaled service, Blickman Pro Brewing equipment is the right choice for pro results. Whether it's for your pilot system or production line, their robust systems come fully equipped with everything you need to hit the ground running. Designed for easy setup and intuitive use, their brew house systems and cellaring equipment deliver uncompromising quality and reliability backed by a name you trust, so you can focus on what matters most, your beer. Visit BlickmanPro.com today. Yakima Chief Hops has combined their patented cryogenic hop processing technology with cutting-edge lab analysis to create cryohops with a pop. Cryopop Original Blend is a supercharged, concentrated lupulin pellet packed with the most beer-soluble hop compounds or compounds that survive the brewing process. It is engineered to bring massive tropical, stone fruit, and citrus aromas into your finished beers. Learn more about this new innovative product at cryopopblend.com. And hey, nanobrewers, Fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, is now offering dry ale and lager yeasts in flexible 100-gram pouches. Try their Cefal, WB06 yeast in a convenient 100 gram pouch. It's the perfect solution for wheat based beers. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit Fermentus.com. And also, BYO has several live online workshops coming up of interest to small-scale craft brewers. On April 8th, don't miss Brewery Taproom Draft Systems, and on June 17th, learn about brewery financials. Both live online workshops are four hours long, and you'll have the opportunity to ask experts your questions live. Find out more at byo.com bootcamps. And speaking of questions and experts, let's get back into it. When you're talking about um, fermentation space, it's interesting because uh, we have a, a letter from Dane who says, uh, any thoughts on alternative uh, alternatives to the expensive per barrel, small size conical unit tanks? So alternatives to small conicals. Oh, yeah, you can do it like they used to do in the old days. <laughs> Make a fermenter out of slate. Now you can... Uh, <laughs> you. You can ferment in open. I don't know fermenters. if you're being serious or not. I don't. I don't know if you're paying you attention to larger trends, Steve. But <laughs> <laughs> but people will do this now. I know. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, the fermentation. The, you're talking about nano again. You're talking about the expensive cylinder conical. The cylinder conical, really, the advantages of it. The main advantages of it kick in when you get up to, you know, larger scale. Um, the little ones. Um, you might as well um, stick to home brewing equipment, which is buckets and uh, and uh, and then closed tanks, perhaps a bright tank of some sort for for, for carbonating and processing into. Um, you don't have to have a cylinder conical vessel, no, not at all. There's there's historically the and the cylinder conicals are a invention of the re recent craft brewing. Um, where um, explosion where where small breweries have gone with those shapes of vessels for the uh, convenience um, but uh, historically there's there's no need for that you can open ferment then you can mature in a closed vessel and package into a bright tank 
I have seen um, some really interesting equipment alternatives from Tom Hennessy at Colorado Boy, the, uh, <laughs> the author of the Frankenstein system. And I think it's really interesting to see the alternatives to, to pretty much everything he's come up with. Yeah. yeah, it's lovely to see him coming back into fashion again. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. I, I don't know if this was uh, background subtext to the question or not, but the what what where my mind went was um, stainless steel alternatives, uh, and maybe somebody asking, you know, is plastic okay? Yeah, plastic's fine if you look after it. Um, doesn't have great heat transfer, so you mean you end up having to put uh, the, the, the cooling equipment inside the vessel in contact with the beer, so it's slightly less hygienic, um, and it's really hard sometimes to get that that, um, that protein la layer ring around the top and protein and dead yeast that forms in a fermenter after fermentation. Um, but if the right chemicals can dissolve it, you know, it's more prone to scratching with abrasive cleaners. But um, if you treat it right, then uh, it certainly works fine. Dane has a couple of questions in here, uh, and I'm jumping around on this letter, but um, is there advice to starting a small, and he's saying uh, one to two barrel uh, uh, brew house without a tap room can can is that still feasible in this day and age to to not have a tap room i don't sure. think so uh oh we just contradicted each other <laughs> perfect <laughs> welcome to the conflict segment of the of the podcast yeah yeah well i i think i think my answer of sure it kind of goes back to um steve's earlier point of of what is your intent why are you doing this um, and, and I think that if you are, are looking to, you know, become the next Sam Adams, then the answer would be no. Um, I think that if you want to be open one day a week and sell beer out of your garage, of course you can, you know, uh, go going back to all the various state laws and what you can and can't do. Um, there are plenty of models of, of breweries who open with a, a packaging business plan only. Would I advise that? Would anybody else advise that in this day of distribution challenges? I don't know. Um, but if you have a, you know, if you've got enough places that want to sell your beer, there's no reason that you have to have a tap room. Now that's Counterpoint. True. No, that is true. The, um, if you, I mean, I, no, I hadn't thought of the- You, convin um, you convinced them, I love it. No, I hadn't, I hadn't immediately thought of the model where, where you, um, you have your, your, in your garage and you sell growlers to go and that's all you do Work for sean lawson yeah well that's still um yeah and 14th star here in uh, here in vermont as well did it that way um that the yeah if you if long term you want to be profitable in that business from the start then i mean then obviously you need to get the margin that you get for selling pints um, which is significant. Um, it's something like you can sell a keg for $200 um, or you can sell it for $1,800 a pint at a time. Um, so individually, individually, um, how, how do you want to run your businesses? Yeah, but, then, but then you've got to be in the entertainment business. You've got to have a tap room, you've got to have a staff and you've got to have a, a place and a space and a reason for people to come and think about food and all of that other stuff as well. So um, of that scale, it becomes pretty much uh, um, 
you know your personal choice what how you want to live your life as well when you're running it Dane keeps coming with all of these uh, these great questions here though and and Laura this sort of feeds into something that you were talking about just now but um, what about alternative direct to consumer distribution and they they cite farmers markets beer clubs etc and again going for a one to two barrel business model is if you don't have a tap room is that feasible is that a smart smart route um again you know you always have to come back to where where do you want to go where do you want to get to um ultimately but uh farmers markets is an interesting idea I, again you'd have to look at the legalities of your particular uh jurisdiction and area but there's more and more alternatives to get to market. Um, Bev, uh, a lot, a lot of direct-to-consumer options are becoming legal. The pandemic has opened a lot of uh, loopholes and places that there didn't used to be any. Um, shipping state to state has become more legal. Um, I think the the beer of the month club has always existed. There's um, there's just a whole lot of new ways to be able to get beer to um, a consumer. I think that the, where you start to run into weirdness is if that's your only way of only way that you're going to get your beer out. Um, I think that, and Steve would probably agree with this as well. That the optimal is to to sell it over your bar or out your garage door, where you can sell it without the packaging and without the cost and without um, the brain damage. But you can certainly self distribute to your own immediate area and um, you'd have the packaging cost, but you wouldn't have the third-party distribution cost. You can also have the third-party distribution cost to get stuff out um, beyond that reach, but then you start running into legalities and, and it's hard to get a, a good relationship, partnership going with distributors these days, particularly if you're a smaller brand that hasn't been successfully built already. So we're having to do more and more and more to build your own brand before you can reach out for distribution. Um, and the opportunities are limited and the, and the, the, the mind share, the bandwidth of the distribution, sales representatives and all that stuff is, is challenging. So um, direct to consumer is becoming more and more popular. You just have to really vet all the options for doing that in an effective way that's actually good for your beer. You don't want your beer on a floor stack in a warehouse warm before it gets to a consumer either. So having that control is really important too. Steve, what do you think on that one? Yeah, you're right. The farmers market stuff, the direct to consumer stuff, um, again, it's, a, it's an awful lot of work. So if you're brewing, um, um, if you've got another job, um, you need somebody to start to head off, load up with 10 cases or so down to the farmers market and hand sell every bottle to somebody. Um, it's it's uh, it's tough, and then you're you're, you're on a you're on a perhaps a, a working rotation there where you're doing several farmers markets, and that's somebody's nearly you know full time job. So it's um, it's tough to make money on a on a small scale on on a two barrel scale. Two barrels is uh, probably going to be about ten logs or or um, or four kegs um, to sell to different to bars and restaurants and then you've got to support the sale in that bar and restaurant to keep the tap you've got to build them a, give them a tap handle you've got to do the delivery and then stay on top of where their inventory lies and you've got to clean their draft lines and there's a lot lot more to it than just uh, selling a keg um, or persuading someone to buy a keg and then in this uh, current market we call it rotation nation um yeah. you and 10 other 
breweries are vying for that same tap uh, or the same draft line in that same bar and uh, and uh, you won't be there all the time. Um, it's hard to build a brand in that situation. It's uh, I, I've run into breweries at farmers markets uh, over the years and, and and in various spots. And I've always, because of the nature of farmers markets, I will say that if you go that route, filling that morning before you go to the farmer's market, uh, if you're doing crawlers or, or, you know, especially if you're doing crawlers, uh, filling that morning before you go, which could mean uh, getting up at 4 or 3am uh, to, to, to meet those early crowds um, is going to be important. Think about the audience and the freshness factor of what people are buying in those locations. If you say, you know, oh, these are growlers that we filled earlier in the week, um, you know, the beer fans might not be into that, especially knowing, you know, that crawlers should be consumed relatively fresh. So um, timing, I think, is important on that as well. I found that at those at those particular locations, you get a better experience for buying as well. You get somebody that genuinely cares about what they're selling you and can talk about and answer questions knowledgeably, which isn't always the case. In a, well, it's the case in my particular brewery tap room, but it's not always the case in everyone's. And uh, and so getting getting that one on one direct experience, it's uh, it's 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 hard to say no when someone who obviously cares about what they're doing is letting you sample and is uh, and is uh, telling you their story. Yeah, but also having you know for 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 if you're going to be doing beer clubs or farmers markets as well, and you don't have a tap room, uh, having a social media presence where you're alerting people what's going to be available and where is going to be critically important to get the word out as well, because people like having that knowledge before they go and plunk down a couple of bucks or uh, they might come out to see you specifically. So uh, having that aspect of it, of the public outreach, even if you're not in a traditional model, I think still applies. That really helps a lot, even if you are in a more traditional model, if you go do tastings and liquor stores and, and, and other places, special events, festivals, whatever, it really brings the personal into it. I, I find that that's a tremendous boost and, and also gives you something else to talk about on that social media platform. We're going to be there in person. Absolutely. Dane has one last question. I don't know uh, if we can, how deep we can get into this, but um, uh, any experience with wastewater uh, when you can't dump it into a city sewer? Using a septic system, hauling off-site, et cetera. Steve, is that something that comes up in your classes? All the time, yeah. Yes, um, that is uh, that's one of the biggest issues that breweries face starting out um, is uh, what to do with the uh, waste product, waste from the uh, from the process. Um, it's easy to, you know, there's solutions for all the solid waste, um, spent grain, um, spent hops and spent yeast uh, can be diverted and, and hopefully uh, a farmer that, uh, or, or, or composter that wants to take those off your, off your hands can do that for you. Um, the liquid waste will continue to be the, uh, the issue that you face. Um, you're using chemicals to clean things. It's going to go down the down a drain of some kind or into some waste stream at some point. Septic systems, there are breweries that have had some success with them, uh, but it does require a fair amount of uh, side streaming and taking away this anything solid or straining out anything solid that you possibly can or diverting it to the solid waste stream. Um, 
but yeah the, the, it's it's hauling it off site is where a lot of people end up going and um the labor that's associated with that and then the fees that are genuinely associated with that if you find someone that's willing to take it because it's valuable to them then great but if you can't then uh, you're going to be paying to get rid of the get rid of that get rid of that waste as well and then there's a tremendous amount of labor involved and then in depending on the climate you're in we're we're in uh, the um the northeast here and so you know we can't leave stuff outside in the winter so the waste tank um needs to be inside and when it's got all the brewery effluent and waste in it it gets unless you're pretty pretty on top of things then it can get it can it can get stinky and smelly and be a contamination risk yeah. so um it's uh it's it's definitely a, a an issue uh here in vermont two breweries uh two of the most recently or recent breweries to build and expand have both put or three of them rather have all put their own wastewater treatment plants in and um and uh, through necessity they've been you know forced to do it uh and um it's added a tremendous amount of cost to their expansions because of that i'm actually working right now in the cleveland area with a farm brewery and it's interesting because uh, we don't have sewers here so they're dealing with septic for sure, and in the design of how to how to wrangle that, um, we worked with Dustin Hauk, the architect in San Diego, and Dustin mm -hmm. suggested having a um, like a, a a split where you could uh, reroute the liquid in the case that you had a lot of volume to holding tanks. In the meantime, you know, normally having the routing go to the septic, but if you had a, a large amount, like if you had to dump a batch or something. Um, that you could then switch over to the holding tanks and have the holding tanks pumped as needed, but that the septic could um, could handle your regular brewing um, fluid uh, waste on a on Monday or Tuesday, and then over over the rest of the week be able to soak in to the the septic uh, world in the meantime. But the farm brewery is not necessarily planning to be open in the winter time. And that takes care of the, the frozen part of things. All right. We have a letter from Eric who describes himself as a hopeful brewer in Idaho. He says, I'm looking to someday turn my hobby into a nano brewery, but I cannot find information on how to scale up recipes from five gallons to five barrels. Well, I can help with that. <laughs> yeah there's there's plenty well of software, you've come I to think. the right show yeah, yeah. <laughs> right right <laughs> yeah there's there's lots of um yeah i'm trying to think how to word this um there's a fair amount of information out there um in order to be able to do this uh you've got to think in terms of um well, it's going to depend on the system that you end up buying um, and then ascertaining from whatever information source you can, maybe trial and error on your part, uh, the relative efficiencies of the process. So every brewery has a efficiency of what, what yield, what percentage of the, of the, um, of the potential yield it can deliver. Um, and uh, it's, it means um it means finding that out um, and you're and comparing it with your pilot system or your homebrew system. In fact, if you're going to be commercial, then your homebrewing system now becomes what's known as a pilot brewing system. So you've got to start thinking in different terms because you're practicing recipes for your, your you know, for your new brewery. Um, you've got 
to consider the efficiency of the brew house and then you've got to consider the efficiency of hop utilization and uh, there's uh, like I said there's a fair few resources out there to help you with that I think mean, there's been a probably been a few articles in brew your own over the years about um, about how to how to work with recipe efficiencies and then it's just a case of of, uh, of doing the math Laura were you jumping in there or are you did that um, I, I don't, I mean, I know Beersmith in particular, because I've worked with Brad some, but I think that um, there are a number of, of specific software programs that are written out there that can absolutely help with that. So I think it's more a question of looking in the right place because the information is there. Okay. Lewis asks, what are the benefits for a nanobrewery to work with their local homebrew store? Are there any? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, well, they and already we'll figure out the answer. Yeah. No, yeah. nano breweries have access to the um, to you know buying grains and things like that, and um, you can you can certainly work with them in that regard. But also um, maintaining the the a level of interest in the homebrew community can can with a lot of community a lot of homebrewers uh, groups and clubs are uh, involved with or, or based around homebrew suppliers homebrew stores, so you can certainly um, access bunch of, uh, of, uh, of potential customers who are intrigued and interested by, uh, by what you're doing and uh, offer the ability to, to help them um, uh, give them opportunity to brew their recipes and there's a lot of lot of uh, lot of um, positives from working with the homebrew community and a lot of that will be based around the store short of you know having them as a source for ingredients yeah. There's also just that connection that comes. I think most brewers were professional brewers, were home brewers at some point, uh, and maintaining those roots, remembering where you came from, and uh, staying connected. I mean, yeah. home brewers are still very much influencing the larger beer industry through creativity, through uh, respect for styles and tradition, and staying connected to that. I think helps keep a lot of brewers grounded. I totally agree. All right. There is, we got two more questions. Uh, Jim reaches out and says, as it seems sours have become a popular choice for craft brewing fans, would you consider it a real detriment not to offer a sour in your tap room? And then continues also, does this style seem to be losing steam, holding steady or becoming even more popular? And then there's a second, there's a follow-up question, but uh, sours, yes, no, growing, fading. Steve's getting angry. <laughs> Maybe I should go first then. Um, yeah, let's, yeah. Let, let's let Steve take a couple of laps around the brewery and then go yeah, back exactly. after he's cooled off in the Vermont winter air. There you go. I, I, I would have to say that, that whether you carry sours in your, in your, tap room or make sours in your brewery or not is, is a personal choice that should be based on what your brewery is all about. Um, I don't think there's a mandate for, for making or carrying sours. And I don't think that there's, um, there's anything specific to be gained by avoiding them. I think it depends on what you want to do and what's consistent with your vision and your brand. Um, there's, you know, now that there's kettle sours, it's not necessarily a time thing. Now that we've learned how to manage the wild yeast a little better, 
it's not necessarily an enormous contamination thing, although I'm sure you uh, need to be super careful if you're if you're planning on on doing that. But I I don't know. I I love sours. I think sours um, they they opened up the the beer universe to me. I'm not a hops person, so it's it's a good way to um, offer a different flavor profile of beer and maybe maybe usher in a new um, era or a, a new demographic of beer appreciation folks that are even willing to spend a little bit more money because sours often are a little more expensive. Um, so I'm, I'm a fan, but you're not going to, you know, there, there's no mandate to have them in my opinion. Yeah. Steve. Well, <laughs> to me, well, back in the day, <laughs> mindful of the clock uh, as well, Steve. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't, well, I made kettle sours a um, couple of times. Um, I don't have the expertise to do it um, properly. And if I can't do it properly, I'm not going to, not going to offer it for sale. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, to me, it's, uh, it's, it's a risk I'm not particularly willing to take with all the rest of my beers. Um, although having said that, in the last three or four years, there's been a tremendous um, increase in, in, in kind of, the, the ability or the availability for brewers to make safe sours in their breweries. So there's yeast strains that make sour beer now um, that are available that um, brewers can use. Um, but, you know, I, I enjoy one that's well-made uh, personally, but you're right. There, uh, as it comes to the question of whether you need to have one, um, I'd say don't make one just for the hell of it. Make one if you think you can offer something that's really good. Uh, but, you know, I was also a few couple of years back at the uh, um, Wicked Weed Tasting Room um, in Asheville and mm -hmm. uh, at their sour beer facility and took just took a moment to myself and looked around and every single customer in there was a was a woman who had gone there after work, um, dressed in their office clothes and drinking beer and thought, well, that's got to be a good thing. This is a, this is bringing into um, it, it, bringing a, a new demographic together in the beer drinking world. And that can't be that can't ever be bad. I, I, I the only thing I'll add to this is when I'm out and talking to brewers and asking what they're passionate about. After I taste the beers, after having those conversations, maybe it's suggestive, but a lot of the time, if, if a brewer cares about a style, they're going to put a little bit more thought into the recipe and what gets out there. And if they don't, so if you're not passionate about sours, um, either make sure that you're fully engaged while you're doing it and, and still giving it your all, um, or it's just not going to be that great. So be passionate about what you're making. Um, and if you're not passionate about it, it's, it's okay. As Laura said, there's no mandate uh, not to make it same thing with hazy IPAs. You know, your brewery does not need 19 hazy IPAs uh, on, on, on draft. Well, that comes down to word of advice about everything we're talking about today. If you're not passionate about it, then don't think about doing it. Um, don't open a nano brewery. If you're not really, really passionate about what you're doing. All right. Final question. This comes from Zach at Portland U-Brew and Unicorn Brewing. And Zach asks, how crazy are we to be a lager-centric nano? Uh, <laughs> I don't well, think, well, yeah. 
all of us, all of us are, are, I, I mean, I'm excited by the possibility of it, but and I'm you also have to have a very, very, very large space that you could fill with fermenters and always have things sitting. I think it's a question of space and time. Yeah. Really. I don't think it's a question of crazy. I think it's a question of efficiency. So mm -hmm. Steve, what do you think? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, many, many more tanks. You can, you can brew lagers. You see four times the vessels that you need for brewing ales. So you can, it certainly, certainly do it. And uh, if you, if you're really, really excited about brewing lagers, I'm sure you're going to be making some of the best ones in the world. So get, get on, you know, but you need, you need to be, and you will obviously be aware that it just takes longer to make each batch and that uh, time just makes things better with lagers and uh, to a certain extent anyway. And um, yeah, no, it's not crazy because there's definitely an interest from the general public about it. It's just whether, whether you can, you can afford to do it or not. Well, I want to thank everybody who took the time to write into the podcast and certainly to Laura and Steve, thank you for taking the time to answer all these questions, to share your knowledge and your expertise and to, to I think, help the industry that is nano brewing by, uh, by your thoughtful answer. So thanks to you both for, for being on the show this month. Yeah, appreciate thank it. Awesome. Thanks for so much me. fun. So what's on your mind? Email us and your letter might be read and answered on a future episode. That email again is nano at byo.com. And I'll invite you to head over to byo.com slash nano podcast, subscribe to the newsletter, the magazine, and to catch up with great pro brewing content. New episodes of this show are released on the 15th of every month. So subscribe now and never miss a show when it's released. And you can also do us a favor by leaving feedback on your podcast platform of choice or by emailing nano at byo.com or checking in with us on all of the various BYO social media channels. Before we go, a word of thanks to this show's sponsors, and we hope that you'll give them a closer look. Blickman Pro Brewing. With superior engineering and unrivaled service, Blickman Pro Brewing Equipment is the right choice for pro results. Whether it's for your pilot system or production line, their robust systems come fully equipped with everything you need to hit the ground running. Designed for easy setup and intuitive use, their brew house systems and cellaring equipment deliver uncompromising quality and reliability backed by a name you trust, so you can focus on what matters most, your beer. Visit BlickmanPro.com today. Yakima Chief Hops has combined their patented cryogenic hop processing technology with cutting-edge lab analysis to create cryohops with a pop. Cryopop Original Blend is a supercharged, concentrated lupulin pellet packed with the most beer-soluble hop compounds or compounds that survive the brewing process. It is engineered to bring massive tropical, stone fruit, and citrus aromas into your finished beer. Learn about this new innovative product at cryopopblend.com. And hey, Nano Brewers, Fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, is now offering dry ale and lager yeasts in flexible 100-gram pouches. Try their Safeale WB06 yeast in the convenient 100-gram pouch. It's the perfect solution for wheat-based beers. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit Fermentus.com. Also, get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new Nano Plus membership. 
Learn from craft beer experts, watching replays of past NanoCon seminars, plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com slash nanoplus for all of the details. I'm John Hall, and you can still find me weekly behind the microphone on the Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast, as well as Steal This Beer. Find those where podcasts are found, and I hope you'll tune in. Our theme music was created by Scott McCampbell, and we thank him for that. And once again, be sure to check out byo.com slash nanopodcast for all of your nano brewing needs. For now, we wish you all the best for a small but successful brew day. <laughs>